This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hey folks, if you dig our show, please do two things. As we relaunch, first, consider rating and reviewing it in iTunes. It really helps people find the show. Second, consider visiting our Patreon page and chipping in a few bucks. Every little bit helps. You can do that at patreon.com slash join slash cultivated. Okay, on with the show. You know, as you were a teenager, as you were growing up, did you anticipate doing what you're doing now? Like, what, what did you think you would be when you were 18, 20 years old? Yeah. I had a deep spirituality, like I say, but I did not see that translating into pastoral ministry. Um, so I've, I've been in ministry in some form or the other for the last 20 years or so, pastoral ministry for 11 of those years, and then hmm. seminary education and writing and counseling and other things uh, the rest of the time. This is my friend Chuck DeGroat. Chuck is a professor of pastoral care and counseling at Western Seminary and is the author of several books, including one of my favorite recent reads on spirituality, Wholeheartedness. I did not see it translating into going to seminary and becoming a pastor. Uh, that happened a little bit later, uh, in part because of the influence of a, a pastor in my life who uh, saw that as a, as a good trajectory for me. I wanted to be a pilot. And so I, I was uh, in something called the Civil Air Patrol back in the day on Long Island. We'd march around the streets in formation, and I, I became a sergeant, and I would lead drills. People can't see this about me at all. People who know me now right. can't imagine me like um, leading a drill with 20 young guys, you know, but, but that's what I did back in the day, hoping, I think it was like every young guy's dream that watched Top Gun to be Tom Cruise. <laughs> so I think there's a little bit of that involved, but right. I was going to go into the Navy ROTC and, and, and fly yeah. uh, until uh, an eye doctor told me I didn't have the vision for that, wow. which was crushing for me because that was kind of a dream to fly. And that's when I went on a kind of more of a winding you trajectory. Least, you could have at least done the shirtless volleyball. That that would have been a, that's, yeah. That's I still, don't know that that w would have worked for me. You know, but. <laughs> that's still an option for you. So <laughs> your Top Gun dreams are still so, alive. Yeah, okay. Thanks for that. That's a great suggestion. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on. It seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Hey folks, we are back. I'm Mike Hosper, and you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. It's been too long since our last episode. I know there's been a lot of stuff going on, but I'm excited to be back at the microphone again and here with you. And I'm really excited about this conversation with Chuck pretty wide-ranging, talking about both his work and about spirituality in general, and digging into a big conversation that the church seems to be having with itself. One Chuck is invested in greatly, a conversation about narcissism in the church. It's important stuff, so stay with us.
Well, yeah, I grew up on Long Island in New York. Hmm. I used to have the thick accent, but uh, don't have it anymore. My mom can and dad were from the city. I can bring it back. Yeah. Talk like a New Yorker for the rest <laughs> of the time, yeah. I, uh, I grew up on Long Island, and uh, my folks were from the city, moved out to the island in uh, the 60s, which was a time of white flight from the city. So it was a really interesting upbringing because I've had to look back in my life to, to see that I grew up in a fairly diverse setting, and yet it was a product of, of white flight from the city. Mm. And so that mentality was very much a part of um, the, the sort of the ethos of my relationships and community during that time. Yeah, how so? I, I'm only seeing it sort of in retrospect now, mm-hmm. but as I look back, uh, uh, I, I, I see it in certain attitudes in, in uh, I think I can say this in the podcast, I don't think she'll listen to it, but in my mother in particular, yeah. you know, um, particularly in this cultural moment. But uh, it, it's, it's really interesting to look back in that part of my life and to think, I, I grew up in New York and I've always been proud of that. Uh, growing up on Long Island, growing up in a fairly, uh, I, I would say, diverse, I call it a diverse setting, but it was diverse in the sense that my friends were Italians and Polish and Jewish mm. and, and things like that. But Was it a was it Christian home? Yeah, so I grew up in a, well, I'll put it this way, my parents took me to church to get baptized and it stuck. Mm. Um, my parents uh, were, were churchgoers in their earlier years and then stopped going and... Uh, took me to get baptized at Peace Lutheran Church, and, and that's that's where we were for a little while until my dad decided to visit the Reformed Church, the mm. Dutch Reformed Church. And it, immediately as we walked in and introduced ourselves as De Groot, they said, oh, De Groot, you belong here. <laughs> and so, so yeah, then we, we were in the Reformed Church after that. Yeah. What, what was your kind of the spirituality of your, your childhood like? Did you take it seriously at that age or...? Did you kind of awaken to it later? Yeah, I took it seriously from a, a pretty early age. Uh, I do think, I talk about in this book that I wrote called Wholeheartedness in the last chapter that a really significant part of my childhood was in the Lutheran Church. The, litur- mm. the liturgy of the Lutheran Church was significant for me. I, I couldn't tell you anything about the sermons. What I can tell you is, I can tell you where the table was, where the font was, and where the eternal light was this 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 candle essentially that would never go out for for a little kid that was a mystery I'm sure there was some science behind it but for me then there was there's something of uh, even when we went there on a weekday the candle was still on right so there was something of of a light that never went out that was really interesting and mysterious and enticing to me and from a really early age I think I was captivated by 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 the mystery. Uh, and wonder of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't in my earliest days a primarily cognitive experience of church. Uh, it wasn't about the doctrine. It wasn't about the rights or wrongs. It was about a feeling of participation in something larger and a story that was larger mm. in in the midst of what was a somewhat chaotic home relationally. Mm. So there was always a steadiness. Uh, um, a holiness to our church experience that I didn't experience hmm. in my home. Hmm. It's funny. I, I talked to a guy who uh, lived in the basement of a Lutheran church during his college years. We, this was months ago. He told the story about, he told the story about the same thing. He, he would, he was not a believer, but he was living in the basement of this Lutheran church and 
one of the things that drew him to faith was that candle just captivated him because mm. they had they had one of these eternal candles and yeah. he would to get to his apartment he had to walk through the the sanctuary mm. and he would walk through the sanctuary and yeah. kind of stumble in and, and see that candle burning and he'd come in drunk you know yeah. and stuff like this and but that candle would always kind of stick in his mind yeah. and then eventually one sunday he wandered upstairs and attended started attending yeah. services and like you say, you know, yeah. kind of stuck for him. Yeah, it's interesting. The poet David White, I don't know if you know David White's yeah. work, but oh, he yeah. talks about uh, the journey from innocence to experience, our young years, mm-hmm. years of innocence. And I think those years were years of innocence, and I wasn't privy to the adult conversations and the disagree- theological disagreements and things like that. It was just wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a good book, by the way, called Recapturing the Wonder. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of it. But uh, but I, I think... In a sense, I've always, uh, my life in my 40s in particular has been about recapturing the wonder, which Mm. is really, really interesting. It's about finding that early faith and the mystery and the rootedness that, uh, and, and, and the holiness of it that I lost as I made that journey into my high school years, into the years of experience where I realized, oh, now this is a world of theological disagreement and polarization. And, you know, dad's friend is angry at him tonight, and they've got to have a long conversation because of their disagreement on a theological issue. Interesting. Yeah. So your parents were pretty engaged in the life of the church? I think my my parents taking me to church to get baptized, it, it stuck for them, but for my dad in particular, uh, he went all in, hmm. and he started listening to a radio preacher named Harold Camping. Harold Camping, maybe about 10 years ago, predicted the end of the world and the return oh, yes. of Jesus. I don't, okay. Yeah, maybe yeah, you remember, I remember that. Turns out that it didn't happen, just in case you, <laughs> you wondered. But my dad went all in with Harold Camping, who had a very interesting sort of esoteric allegorical understanding, symbolic understanding of the Bible, so that it's convenient. His interpretation was sort of like the only interpretation. It was very right. Gnostic, right? And and so my dad went all in with that. My dad drove to Jersey every day from Long Island to go to work back. He'd listen to it was family radio. Harold Camping was on family radio. And so he soaked that in, but he also, in that, he also was in, in sort of in, indwelling this kind of Gnostic, I'm right and you're wrong kind of spirituality, which, uh, which led to uh, arguments, confrontations with people in our churches, led us to move on from the Lutheran church to a mm. Reformed church, a Christian Reformed church to a Reformed church, back to a Christian Reformed church. Mm. So that, that was tough for me because we left that church that was so crucial for me and so important for me in my youth. Not long after high school, after realizing he wasn't going to be a pilot, a pastor began encouraging Chuck to think about ministry as a vocation. And that's when a pastor said, I, you know, I think, I think it's time for you to move on from that, and I'd love for you to consider going to the college I graduated from. And I, I asked him, so what, what is that? What college is that? And he said, well, Dort College. Hmm. And I said, well, what's a, what's a Dort? <laughs> <You know? laughs> he told me about this old confession called the Canons of Dort. Uh, and this college out in Sioux Center, Iowa. And he said, just visit. You'll know what I mean when you visit. And I think what he meant by that was back in like the late 80s on Long Island, uh, all, all the girls had hair that was hairsprayed up about like two feet above their heads. Right. And I got out to Iowa and um, and I, I, I fell in love with these blonde-haired, 
blue-eyed Dutch girls who are all about <laughs> six feet tall. And so he was, you know, this is my pastor saying, just go out there and yeah. you'll know what I mean when you get there. But uh, more than that, there was something about uh, the sort of the serene landscapes of Northwest Iowa that captured me. I, I grew up on the island. I grew up around a lot of concrete and and not a whole lot of green. And I get out mm. to Iowa and the cornfields just go on for miles and miles and miles, right? And mm-hmm. um, and it was there was something about the open, spacious uh, geography of of the land of Northwest Iowa that that really drew me in. Uh, because as I said earlier, my, my my childhood was fairly chaotic. My family was fairly dysfunctional. Hmm. So the spaciousness was something that attracted me at a soul level. Was that when kind of counseling, pastoral ministry came onto your radar, or no? So that that was a season of of growth and learning, being exposed to new ideas that were outside of my dad's kind of small Gnostic box of, of Christianity. Yeah. I took a class with a missiologist named Mike Goheen, who was just beginning to study Leslie Newbegin back then. So this mm. would have been in 1989 that I sat in Mike Goheen's home and we studied Newbegin and we studied David Bosch. Mm. I took a course on liberation theology. So my eyes were being opened to, to a larger larger issues in Christianity. I actually read Calvin's Institutes, which I, I don't think a lot of Reformed people have done, uh, from cover to cover and thought, this this dude isn't that bad. You know, this is actually pretty interesting <laughs> and different than the, the kind of Reformed yeah. faith that I'd grown up in. Uh, so, I was becoming interested in ideas, and that, that eventually took me to seminary where I re- sort of remained in my head, remained in the world of ideas, thinking that I would go off and do a PhD eventually um, at St. Andrews in Scotland. In fact, I'd gone over to Oxford University and studied for a summer. I was studying apocalyptic literature and was in conversations with a scholar named Richard Bauckham to study under him. And it was during that summer that I took another course with Alistair McGrath on contemplative spirituality um, and the spirituality of the mystics. And here was this Reformed theologian inviting me to read uh, Julian of Norwich and St. Teresa of Avila and Hildegard of Bingen and, um, uh, and, and John of the Cross and all the... I, I, it was stunning to me, like, we can read these people? But I was drawn to, I, I think... I was drawn to that mystery of my childhood, maybe in a way, you know, in the contemplative spiritual writers. And it was during that season where, uh, where I, I began to have all sorts of questions about my faith and about my vocational trajectory. So when I returned in, after the summer of 1997 to Orlando, I sat with a professor of counseling who himself was on his own spiritual journey and was reading some of these same folks. And he said, hey, just give me two years before you go off and do a PhD. Just give me two years, and I'd love to have you do our counseling program here. And and it was transformational for me. It was spiritually, emotionally transformational to do that program. Hmm. So that led me on that next journey. Yeah. So that was at RTS. That was at RTS Orlando. Okay. Yeah. So you didn't end up going to St Andrews. No, I didn't. Yeah. And and that was a big deal because I, for me as a guy who's sort of climbing the ladder, the scholarly ladder, you know, to say no to Bauckham and St. Andrews was saying no to a really extraordinary opportunity. And it was saying yes to a larger conversation in my heart Hmm. that 
that is not as impressive externally, right? Sure. It's, it's not what people are looking for. It's it's not what, you know, the the big name school that you attend uh, tends to draw more people than the journey of the heart that takes you into a two-year <laughs> counseling program, right? Right. So. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. Well, it's interesting too. I mean, there's the, we were, we were talking about this before we rolled the tape, but the the choice there as well as a choice between a, a journey of sort of contemplative spirituality and uh, a journey of into the world of ideas, you know, uh, sort of the rational mm-hmm. theological yeah. world. Yeah. That has informed. I mean, I can just see that how much that's informed your work. And yeah. so, so the fact that that's the outlier, right. And this is, this, I would love to hear you talk about this. The, the fact that contemplative spirituality is sort of the exception to the rule mm. and the outlier in the evangelical world. Why, for you, why do you think that is? Where would you trace? Yeah. Where would you trace that? That's a great question. And it's, I think it's a tragedy that it's an outlier. Yeah. Because this contemplative spirituality is not a new thing. It, it's not a byproduct of some sort of... Uh, marriage between Buddhism and New Agey spirituality um, adopted right. by Christians, you know, sprinkling Jesus on... It's not that. It's... Uh, I, I was drawn, in my own journey, drawn back to St. Augustine. You know, mm-hmm. St. Augustine who says, God is more near to me than I am to myself. I, was, I wasn't told that as a kid, you mm-hmm. know? I was told that I was sinful and God was far, far away and, and, and Jesus bridged that gap, but... Um, but I always had the sense that it was kind of a reluctant bridging of the gap. You know, that God was more near to me than I am to myself. Mm-hmm. That became a foundational principle for the mystics and the contemplative spiritual writers throughout church history. I do think, I'm not a historian, but I do, 
I do think that post-Reformation, um, uh, the Enlightenment has a, a lot to do with a, a kind of um, rationalization or rationalizing of the faith, if you want to call it that. Right. I think the fundamentalist modernist divide um, that led us to become um, debaters of, of uh, fundamentalist doctrine and liberal doctrine versus an experience, a palpable experience of spirituality. I think that has something to do with it, yeah. right? But I'm not a historian. I don't know how all this stuff works itself out. I do know that I, I would say for about the last 100, 150 years, we've moved away from the more contemplative conversation. Yeah. And what has filled the gap to some degree is is psychology, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm I love psychology. I've studied it. I'm a therapist myself, but right. but people find themselves going to other places for uh, some sort of spiritual experience when uh, it's it's right there in the tradition. You know, it's interesting too. I can't remember who it might have been um it might have been, I, yeah, it was. I was listening to a, a lecture by Slavoj Žižek. Do you know Žižek? He's this crazy, I mean, he's super nutty, leftist whack job, but brilliant and brilliant with cultural analysis. And I, I discovered him a few years ago. Anyway, he talks about how the world of philosophy, as philosophy became more analytic you know, more and more removed from kind of the classical mm. idea of the study of the good life and what mm. makes a good life. All of all of those kinds of ideas ended up going to the psychological world as well. Yeah. If you look at where are we talking about who lives a good life and mm. it's it's not like even the church isn't talking about how to live well. It is in psychology. It's sad to me because in the tradition there's a deep what I call developmental spirituality. We talk about developmental psychology. But some of the same categories that you'll see in kind of the the developmental psychologists of the last 20 years or so, you see in the writings of Bernard of Clairvaux, for instance, or you you certainly see it in St. Teresa of Avila's The Interior Castle, The Seven Mansions of the Castle, uh, is a journey into our depths. It's a journey into intimacy with God. Psychologists call that a journey of differentiation or mm-hmm. individuation, becoming oneself. Right. But that's that's exactly what uh, Saint Teresa was getting at, and she was a deeply Augustinian hmm. theologian in her own right. Right, God is at the very center. God is more near to me than I am to myself. It's I who've gone away looking for God and created things. Hmm. Augustine says, right, and so. This journey back, I call it a journey back to oneness and, and worthiness, is is something that have people try to approximate in other traditions with other yeah. modalities, I guess. And yet it's it's sort of all available to us in the contemplative Christian tradition. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, even to look at something like uh, uh, The Dark Night of the Soul mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as a that's something it. that very clearly understands yeah. that life comes in these phases and yeah. that, you know, darkness and trauma eventually right. catches up with everyone. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like something that in our, our evangelical settings, we yeah. deal with that very well. Yeah. We, don't, we don't talk about it. Yeah. Um, oh, we think Carl Jung invented the midlife crisis, right. you know, <laughs> the, the first and second half of life. And that, yeah. that's St. That's John of the Cross, right? You've yeah. got to go through this dark night of the soul, which is actually... God doesn't go away, but the lights go out, and your understanding of God is challenged. What you thought God was, who you thought God was, what you thought faith was, um, isn't what it is, right? So the lights have to go out, and you've got to go through a season 
of, of darkness, of mystery, uncertainty, suffering, pain, disillusionment, disorientation to come out the other side, right? And as you and I were talking about before this, before we rolled the tape, as Mike would say, <laughs> I, I do think that churches nowadays, and particularly evangelical churches, don't have a paradigm for this, what Brueggemann calls this movement from orientation through disorientation to reorientation. Mm -hmm. I just don't think we know what to do or how to journey with people through those phases. Yeah. You know, you think about historians that look at the life of Paul, mm -hmm. you know, Paul thought he knew who he was, thought he had his whole life together, and then he meets Jesus on the road to yeah. Damascus, and he disappears for a while. Yeah. And something's going on in those years, mm. those intervening years, that is surely, you know, him watching his life fall apart, him losing all of his relationships with his his fellow uh, scholars and zealots, and some something's happening there yeah. that then prepares him for ministry. Yeah. We just pick up on the second half of that, right? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot to mine there for. There's a ton to mine. I mean, yeah. Jesus himself went into the wilderness, right? Uh, each of us has to go on our own Exodus journey in a sense, right? And I think that's just, if you read Paul through the lens of the Exodus story, you see that over and over and over again. But yeah. it's striking to me even that you know, G Jesus, when he calls his disciples up the mountain and begins to teach them about this, this life of flourishing, mm -hmm. begins with, blessed are the patokas, blessed yeah. are the broken, the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you come to the end of yourself. Yeah. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And they must have been pulling their hair out of their heads at that moment. Like, right. really? That's no, no, no. You're you're Jesus. You're supposed to. We're supposed to march toward Rome now. And you know, right. it, there's not a paradigm for having to go uh, along the cruciform way, the way of suffering, the way yeah. of downward mobility, as Henry right. Nouwen calls it. Yeah, that's, that's the dark good. night. Yeah, for sure. And yet, everyone experiences it. It's unav unavoidable. I think. Um. Well, let's keep, let's keep going with your story. So you, you go to RTS, where, what happens next? So I go to RTS, I spend two and a half years there, I go off to Oxford, I'm on this upward trajectory toward, toward the PhD. I tell my wife and I tell family and friends who help pay for that experience during the summer that I'll come back with Oxford hats and Oxford shirts if I get <laughs> in, and all that kind of stuff. For me, that's very much a season of nursing the false self, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm 27 with the opportunity of going away and doing a degree at a prestigious institution at Oxford or at St. Andrews. And I have this moment where I sit down with Gary, my professor of counseling, and he invites me on this, this other journey, right? Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting, each and every one of us have these moments in life where we've got to choose one path or the other, right? Right. Um, you see this in the writings of Dante and Robert Frost and T.S. Eliot. You know, there are always the one road goes this way and one road goes that way. And, right. and so the road... Red less, pill, blue pill. Yeah, right. The, right there, <laughs> there you go. Um, by the way, The Matrix was a great sermon illustration for like 10 years after the movie came yep. out. But when I use it now, the kids don't know what I'm talking about. I had know? this so, exact same experience. Yeah, I was yeah. at a conference a few months ago and I made a Matrix reference and yeah. everybody looked at me blankly and I'm like, yeah, it's go so watch sad. the Matrix, people. It's so sad. <laughs> that, Shawshank Redemption, those great movies. Yeah. yeah, so it was that moment for me of taking, you might say, the road less traveled, uh, mm -hmm. the road that was uncertain. Uh, it was certainly puzzling for people who knew me. I lost friends making that decision, mm. uh, friends who thought that I, I uh, was sort of passing up an extraordinary opportunity to do something great. 
Yeah. But for me, it was an opportunity to to do a work that I I sensed was really important at that moment. There was something that was really intriguing to me about reading the contemplatives, but at the same time, I was studying apocalyptic literature during that time, and I recognized, particularly when I was studying the book of Revelation, that it was written during a time of intense suffering. Mm. Uh, the emperor Domitian is uh, beginning to persecute Christians. John writes this apocalyptic work in that context to say, hey, there's a world bigger than your world. You right. know, There's a dimension that you can't see. Your suffering isn't the final word. And there was, I was sitting literally at the Eagle and Child pub in England during that time thinking, if I'm going to do the academic work, um, I need to have the credibility of sitting with people in pain. I, like, I just intuited mm -hmm. that I, there's another journey that I need to go on that requires me to sit with people in pain, to know their stories, yeah. to know suffering, to know my own suffering. And so that's the journey I went on during those last two years at RTS, this Master's of Counseling program. Then at the end of that, I wasn't entirely sure what was going to happen, but a pastor in town invited me to come on staff as the pastor of spiritual formation. Hmm. And that was a title actually that I proposed back in 1998. Wow. That was not language that was being used back then, right. but uh, he was up for it and invited me to come on staff, and I spent six years on a staff of a Presbyterian church down in Orlando doing spiritual formation. I started a counseling center during that time. Mm. Uh, but uh, during that time, I actually started a church called Sojourn, <laughs> which is very, very interesting, uh, because I think you started a church right. called Sojourn somewhere around that time, too. Yeah, 2000. Yeah. Mine, mine didn't quite work out like yours did, but <laughs> but we started this evening contemplative service called Sojourn yeah. that was an invitation to a richer experience of, of an engagement of liturgical spirituality, the, mm. the liturgy, uh, every other week, Eucharist, uh, confession, silence, some, some of the things that we weren't doing in the morning service. By the way, back in the day, this is what Gen Xers did right. when they were serving under Boomer pastors. Right. You know, the, the Boomer pastor had the kind of the big show in the morning, and then the Xers had like the dark couches and candles service in the right. evening. And so I did that. It was called Sojourn, and that was a really impactful season for me. Huh. I think those of us who did that for that three years uh, experienced it as deeply meaningful and engaging in a way that we had never found church engaging, hmm. and yet. I look back and at the same time, I'm in my early 30s at this point, and I think there was a lot of arrogance. I think mm. there was a sense of, I've got it figured out. I, I've got a window into this uh, contemplative world that no one else has. Right. Um, I've got insight. It's a kind of a new Gnosticism that I discovered. Um, yeah. And I think I became somewhat arrogant in the midst of that season. Yeah. That's kind of the emerging church years, right? Yeah. There was yeah. a lot of a lot of kind of experimentation around mm -hmm. the way the church gathered and practiced. Yeah. And um, and there were resources coming out during yeah. that time. There, there were experimental churches in England. I remember picking up a book called Alternative Worship yep. about these dance clubs in England, worship <laughs> experience. I mean, it was really interesting. It was yeah. an experimental time. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So you're talking about the, the arrogance. How did that evolve? What, what happened? Well, I got fired from, <laughs> from the church where I was serving. Yeah, uh, so that evolved. Um, that was a season of 
significant disorientation, to go back to those mm-hmm. Brueggemann categories, orientation, disorientation, reorientation, because uh, getting getting fired, what well, they called it being let go, I call it being fired. Right. Um, when they ask you to clean out your desk and you can't finish your adult ed study the following Sunday, I think you're, you've been fired, you know? Right. And so I'm, I'm out of a job now and I've got a severance package and I've got a young family, two kids under two. Mm. Uh, we've put a down payment on a new home build. Mm. We'd committed to uh, a couple of opportunities during that season to pastor a church in Clearwater, Florida, another opportunity to direct a retreat center in Colorado. Mm. And I just felt too young. And I, so I'd re-upped. I decided to stay at this church. And the pastor and I had a kind of um, conflict during that season. And uh, I think the sense was it's either you or him. Mm. And it was me. He was the founding pastor. And so... So that was a significant time of disorientation, and I'm pretty grateful that in that season I had my counseling degree to fall back on because mm-hmm. I was able to take, I, I had some clients that I was seeing in private practice. I was able to build a client load and to move fairly seamlessly into private practice. Uh, I ended up, uh, I had a good relationship with the then president of RTS Orlando. And uh, after a few months, he gave me an office at the seminary. Hmm. And even more than that, he said, I think you belong here. I've, I'd love to have you teach here. Uh, so I started teaching some courses at the seminary. I was doing private practice out of the seminary. I was supervising students at the seminary. I was beginning to develop a, a paradigm that would eventually lead to my first book, Leaving Egypt, Finding God in the Wilderness Places, this Exodus journey that we all go on. Yeah. Uh, I was working uh, in a church plant during that season with a friend, and so, but I would say that there was a lot of activity. There was a a lot of, uh, I I think that in that season of disorientation, I didn't honor the grief. Mm. Um, There was a tremendous loss. There was humiliation and shame and being fired, and instead of slowing down and honoring the pain and the grief. Um, here I am, the counselor who's supposed to invite other people into right. that. I ignored it because I felt like I needed to put food on the table for my young family. Right. Well, that stuff gets out eventually, yeah. right? Yeah. Like if you don't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, did you did did you have a moment where you where you crashed in order? You know, were you forced to deal with it at yeah. some point? You know, yeah. In your later life. Well, yeah. That's that's. I th- I think I'm I'm still dealing with it now because huh. I think for the the ten years after I was fired I pushed really hard. Mm. I'd say that I was teaching more credits than any full time professor as an adjunct at Reformed Theological Seminary. Mm. I had a full time counseling load. I had uh, students who I was supervising. I was doing a distance learning PhD in psychology during the time. Yeah, and so I had like four full time jobs at the time. I was helping a. Uh, I was serving a church plant during that season, yeah. and uh, and so so it, you're right to say that eventually it's got to come out. But we're, we're also pretty good at repressing things, and I think yeah. that in that season, uh, the way I like to talk about it is um, there's no way that I was going to open my heart again. There's no way that I was going to allow myself to be vulnerable. Yeah. There's there's something of a message internally that said never ever. Let anything like that happen to you again. Mm. Uh, so guard your heart with a kind of desperation. Yeah. And, uh, so I was vi- invited out onto the staff of a church in San Francisco in 2008, 
and I was still in this season, and and this was a this was a church that was a growing church in in San Francisco. I was invited to uh, start a counseling center there. I was invited to help start a seminary education program and a fellows program, and I dove in. Uh, and and I, I can produce things when I'm in this mode, you know. And so I right. was producing in significant ways. And I think it was probably about three or four years into my time in San Francisco when I started to realize there there's work that I, I need to do that I haven't done. And I got with a therapist and started doing that work. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was a good almost decade of – I didn't completely ignore it, but sure. I did in large part. Yeah. Gosh. It's, it's funny, you know, the therapist needing – therapy yeah you know uh i imagine that's probably a pretty common hazard in your industry right i think those of us who become pastors and therapists learn at a very early age that our needs are not that significant so we start taking care of others yeah um we're great at repressing our needs Mm. and and so uh and and we need people in our lives who will invite us to go on that journey every so often so gary did that for me in the late 90s but i think I, i i just avoided it yeah. You know, after after getting fired. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's it's stigmatized in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, even being a therapist, you're probably not immune to the stigma. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. of needing the help. Uh, how long were you in San Francisco? Yeah, so I was in San Francisco for five years. Okay. And uh, it was a really great, really formative five years. I learned a ton, but I also exhausted myself in the process. and. Hmm. Uh, I was pastor of spiritual formation as well, so I was starting these things, and and uh, but we were reimagining spiritual formation at the church out there in San Francisco too, and part of that for me at least was doing that work with the staff first, and this became a, a significant season of inviting the staff into their own formation journeys. Hmm. We did that as a whole staff. We read some books together and did a lot of processing around that. But at one point, and this is pretty significant in my story. At one point, I I had this sense that we were we were in this city that pushes and pushes and pushes and produces and produces and produces, and that we needed to stop. Hmm. That we needed to engage a season of of silence and rest. And um, and so I got permission from the the senior pastor to to shut some things down, to only do the things that were hmm. absolutely necessary. The the city groups that we that we had going and. Uh, but but a lot of it we began to shut down, and we entered into at least the the more senior staff entered into a season of discernment. And the way I like to tell the story, and th- this is my narrative of the story, and 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 I'm probably telling it slant, but right. my narrative of the story is is that I invited the senior level staff into the season of quiet of discernment. We began to think about what it might mean for the church to move in a new direction in terms of formation, and I had some thoughts around this, but I, I really didn't want to move to the strategy yet. I really wanted to take time to, to discern, to ask how we were doing, to, to, to diagnose the church in a sense, and I had this, par- this paradigm um, of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. So we were looking at where people were in the church mm-hmm. on that journey and how we might meet them in these different seasons of and where we were on that journey. And it was it was good. We were slowing down, we were shutting some things down, we were doing some deeper discernment and assessment. And I went away for a couple of weeks. And and when I got back, one of my colleagues came to me and said we came up with a great idea. Uh, in the spirit of what we've been talking about, 
what we want to do is we want to take the whole church through your book, Leaving Egypt, um, and we want to do this over the course of, of like six or eight weeks, mm. and we want to bookend it with two TED Talks that you'll do at the Marines Memorial Theater downtown, mm. and it's going to be this big thing, and it's going to be great for our church. And I remember as she was sharing that with me, like something sort of began to die in me that day. Mm. Like we had to turn it into a strategy, right. you know? We couldn't sit in the quiet and the silence for for just a little bit longer. We had mm-hmm. to turn, uh, we we had to turn it into a strategy to invite people onto their own journeys. Um, which I mean, part part of me didn't mind because they were going to buy a thousand copies of my book and <laughs> and and everyone was going to go through it. So the the narcissist in me kind of felt pretty good about it. And yeah. I was going to be on stage at Marines Memorial Theater and do this big talk and invite the church, that felt kind of good yeah. at one level, but at another level, and now I'm around 40, and so there's some midlife stuff going on inside me, I start to feel like I just, I'm tired. I'm not sure that I can do this. I'm hmm. not sure that I, and, and I'm not sure that we're ready as a church. I think we, we're a mirror of the culture, and we hmm. push, and we strategize, and we develop, and we produce, and that's what we do. And... Um, and so I entered into a season of discernment about what might be next around then. Yeah. Is that what led you to uh, to Western? Yeah. So we were, during the time, we had started something called the Newbegin House of Studies after the British missionary theologian, Leslie Newbegin, yeah. um, who moved to India, was a missionary in India, returned to the West, and returning to the West realized that the West needed missionary engagement, right? Yeah. So Leslie Newbegin is really, in some ways, the kind of the founder unbeknownst to him of this whole sort of missional movement in the United mm-hmm. States and beyond. And so we, we were engaged with that. We looked for a seminary partner back in um, 2010, 2011, and we, we discovered Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Uh, Western is where Leslie Newbegin did the Truth to Tell lectures back in 1991. It's where... Um, uh, a gospel in our culture network. Um, the the gospel in our culture network started back in the the late nineties, and 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 it was a part of the denomination that we were a part of out in the Bay Area. So it seemed like a good partnership. Uh, so our relationship with that church grew, and we we launched our our program together. In fact, we had NT ride out in twenty eleven, I think it was, for our inaugural yeah. conference, and we had some other really good speakers at that conference, and. And uh, so Newbegin and Western partnered for this this project called the Newbegin House of Studies. And I got a call somewhere, maybe a couple, two, three years later, that the professor of pastoral care and counseling was transitioning. Hmm. And there was just some wondering about whether or not I could fill the void for a season. Maybe I could teach some of the classes. And hmm. so I, I thought about that, and I did a little bit of that for them during during that time. But something began to grow in me of a, maybe this could be a good season to to fill that position, to transition Mm. into a season of being a junior professor, not in charge of anyone or anything, not having to start a new thing or produce a new thing, just to pour into young students what I had learned in ministry over the years. And Mm. uh, uh, the pastors out in San Francisco, who are my friends, were really gracious to allow me to enter into a season of discernment, which eventually led us out to Holland, Michigan, of all places, from yeah. San Francisco to Holland, to uh, I'm now professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality at Western. Yeah, yeah. So I first uh, I first heard of you, discovered you, found out about you um, when you published Wholeheartedness, mm-hmm. 
Um, what what year was that? When when would that have been? Ooh, good question. I think it was 2015. Okay, I want to say 2016. So you were, you were yeah. in Holland at the time. I was you in were... Holland. I think I'd started it in San Francisco and okay. finished it in Holland. Yeah. Tell me a little about the book and and yeah. kind of the genesis of of that one in particular. Well, wholeheartedness. I would say is autobiographical, although it doesn't read like that. Maybe parts of it do, but I would say it it really represented and reflected a journey that I was on during my my season in in San Francisco. I was doing a kind of therapy in San Francisco called internal family systems therapy. You you probably heard of family systems therapy, where you you gather with your family in the therapy room, and mom yells at dad, and son yells at Dad, you know all that. Well, this this idea is that we all have a family inside of us. Right. So you've we, we sometimes talk about multiple personalities, and it's not quite that, but it is this sense that the, the easiest way to describe it is like I woke up this morning, and I've got some things to do here uh, today in Louisville, and there's a part of me that wanted to hit snooze and just sleep in, and and just read a book and relax all morning. And there, there's another part of me that's like, let's go. I'm ready for the day. So there are at least two parts of me that I woke up with this morning. And it's a way of dealing with that ambivalence. It's a way of dealing with the different voices within us, the inner critic, um, the little boy. Is this the um, yeah. developed by the guy who wrote the book Self-Therapy? Yeah. Okay. Well, it was developed by Richard Schwartz out of Chicago, okay. but the guy who wrote Self-Therapy was my therapist out in San oh, Francisco. Okay. What's and that so, guy's name? Jay Early. Jay Early. Yeah. Okay. So Jay uh, introduced me to my divided life, yeah. you know, this secular therapist who'd never read Thomas Merton, never n- didn't know of the concept of the false self or anything like that, and invited me to a deeper, richer experience of the spirituality that I was immersed in. And it's a very experiential therapy. And so I was having these inner conversations with these different parts of me. And I realized I was living out of um, this part of me that had taken a vow when I got fired to never, ever let that happen again. And so I'm going to push hard, and I'm going to produce, and I'm going to be the most valuable player wherever I am. And I'd effectively cut off any kind of inner conversation with my own sadness, grief, vulnerability, and pain. So that's the journey that I was on in that season. And really wholeheartedness emerges out of uh, doing that therapy clued me into, it's like the lights go on sometimes when you're doing your work and it's like, oh yeah, that's mm. here and here and here and here and in this poet mm. and in that theologian and in what Brene Brown was saying at the time, you know, I, I just sort of saw it all over the place. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, and the Beatitudes, yeah. More recently, you've uh, on Twitter and yeah. elsewhere, you've been talking a bit about narcissism. I know you yeah. have a book coming on that. Yeah, uh, I'd love to just hear a little bit about what yeah. got you onto the subject and and what. Yeah, obviously, it's something must have made you curious there. Yeah, willing to spend a few years on the subject. Yeah, and, and the conversation is almost the flip side of the wholeheartedness conversation, which right. is really an invitation to our own vulnerability hmm. to our. Our, hum- our humanness, our humus is the word, right? right. Um, um, the, the dust of the earth, um, an invitation to our own limitation. Narcissism is the avoidance of, of limitation. Hmm. Um, grandiosity. It's and... a grandiosity, right? Yeah. It's, it's the false self. It's this hardened false self that develops at a very, very early age that becomes, uh, in the psychological world, we call it characterological, hmm. becomes a, a whole style of relating, so much so that you think that that's the only game there is in town, that's the only self there is, right. the narcissistic, grandiose self. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing somebody once say that narcissists think everybody's a narcissist, 
right? Y- yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> the, the world. That's they, the only paradigm yeah. they have to to see life through, right? Yeah. And so, and and it's really an, an incapacity to relate or to connect to another human being, um, in part because you're so scared yeah. uh, to connect. It's so vulnerable to connect, and you learned very early on that a connection would cause pain. So, in a sense. Uh, my own story, you might hear my own story during that 10 years. I don't know that I'm diagnosably or was diagnosably narcissistic in any way, but I can really relate to that mm-hmm. shutting down of any kind of inner conversation about my own fear, shame, or vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, the narcissism conversation emerged for me because of the work that I was doing in my counseling practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason, women who were abused by narcissistic men started coming to me for counseling back in the early 2000s. Mm. I didn't ask for it. I didn't, I, didn't, um, I didn't advertise it. It just started happening. And so I'm finding myself now subpoenaed to go to court to testify for women who are emotionally abused by narcissistic men. And so I really had to do my homework. I almost did my doctoral work around emotional abuse and narcissism, but went in the direction of pastoral health and well-being. Yeah. But it, it was a really important, has been a really important part of my, my clinical practice, and uh, it's, it's also been a part of my experience as a psychological assessor for church planning networks and denominations. So, the last 15 years or so, I've done a lot of psychological assessments. Hmm. And what we find, um, what I've found, and it's consistent with some of the other stats out there, is that the vast majority of church planters test in the cluster B portion of the personality disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, of the American Psychiatric Association, the DSM, right? So, the cluster B personality disorders, narcissism, histrionic personality disorder, which is like a close kissing cousin of of narcissism, borderline antisocial personality disorder. I'm I'm saying like the vast number of church planners and even pastors test yeah. somewhere on that spectrum. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and you can see it if you look at the culture right now, you know, mm-hmm. the fall of these big name pastors. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen, you know, I'm I'm part of sort of this neo reformed movement yeah. with with I'm part of Sojourn Network, but we were part of Acts twenty nine. Mm-hmm. And we've seen in both of those networks, you know, I could give you the names of a dozen pastors. Yeah who've been removed because of narcissistic Mm. behavior, bullying, domineering. You know, the most recent one is all these stories that have come out about James McDonald Mm -hmm. and just horror. It's a horror show when you see behind the curtain sometimes. Um, Why do you, what do you think it is that attracts the narcissist to that role? Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, in no other vocation do you speak on behalf of God, right? Yeah. You take the stage and you speak on behalf of God. So there's something grandiose mm. about that in and of itself. But I, I tell you, it's really interesting to me. I've, I've looked at a variety of different um, characteristics of church planters that they're fairly similar across church planting networks, but yeah, sure. you can almost lay them out side by side uh, with the characteristics of narcissistic personality disorder. It's just on the one side, it's polished up, yeah. you know, effective communication, right. um, not too sensitive. You know, it's, I remember talking to a church planning assess, assessor at one point, and he said, uh, we, really need, we really need planters with thick skins. <laughs> and so I said, so you're saying, me, saying to me, you need pastors who 
are not sensitive, vulnerable, empathetic. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's, <laughs> they're never going to make it. They've yeah. got to have thick skins. Well, you develop a thick skin because you've been wounded. Yeah. Because somewhere early on in life, you learn that to show your vulnerable side, to show your emotions isn't safe. Yeah. And so you shut it down. And, but you learn, um, a lot of these guys are um, smart enough to learn how to prey on the sensitivity and vulnerability of, of others, yeah. because they know their own sort of dormant vulnerability really well. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting to hear you say um, that it's kind of the flip side of wholeheartedness. It makes so mm-hmm. much sense, yeah. because the wholehearted journey is engaging all those vulnerabilities yeah. and going to all those wounded places yeah. and allowing yeah. them to allowing them to the surface, allowing them in a sense to shape who you are as opposed to, you know, hiding from them. Yeah. What, what else are you working on these days? What else are you excited about? Yeah. So the narcissism book is finished now. I submitted that and I'm excited to be done with that. I, <laughs> I don't know that I want to be the guy that is like the narcissism expert. Right. Um, but it felt like an important thing for a season. But you know what I'm really interested in, having served in two different churches as as a pastor of spiritual formation, is is how we do spiritual formation in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the conversation I find myself having with a lot of students, yeah. uh, with a lot of pastors, uh, in the D-Men work that I'm doing. It seems like the, the old model that still some sort of um, modified version of kind of the traditional model of a, adult ed and small groups, right. that, that kind of discipleship model um, isn't working for a lot of pastors. And yeah. they're wondering, they're intrigued by contemplative spirituality. Um, they're, they're wondering about what's next. And so I think there's work to be done. I know you're interested in this kind of stuff too. I think Absolutely. there's work to be done around um, reimagining a, a sort of a new paradigm for yeah. for spiritual formation in churches. And I, I, my sense is that it's a more developmental paradigm. I think we're going to sort of go back to the future, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to go back to the John of the Crosses and the St. Therese's and the Bernard of Clairvaux's and the yeah. St. Augustine's to find a model that is... Uh, that actually speaks to the different seasons of life that we find ourselves in. And yeah. I think you and I were talking earlier, I think a lot of the evangelical churches that I know are stuck in a kind of first half of life spirituality. Right. And when you get to that stage of disorientation and life gets painful and you have questions, a lot of churches will not create space for you to ask those questions. Yeah. Um, it's not safe to, or to go through that season of suffering or to have your marriage fall apart. Um, moralistic churches don't create space for that. So yeah. what might it look like to help churches understand a more seasonal developmental paradigm for spiritual formation. Yeah. Well, that's part of it. Well, I think the other thing that we, we do really poorly is we do a poor job of equipping people with practices yeah, that can that's actually, right. that's you know, right. formative, formative practice. Yeah. I know that's something you're interested in. And, you know, it seems like we have, we have more ways to communicate than ever, but, but the church seems to, you know, and I'm, and I'm as guilty of this. I, yeah. I don't say this as I'm, I'm a pastor, so I'm, I'm to blame here, um, but we seem to have failed to have found ways to equip people with the practices. Right. You know, we in our church right now we're talking about we we really want to have an emphasis on prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, but you know, honestly assessing it, we realize you know we're not a church that prays well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not a pastoral team that's that's praying well. Yeah. That's really equipped to to know 
how to do this. Mm-hmm. And the question that keeps coming about is how do you how do you actually teach people to pray? Yeah. It should be yeah. one of the first questions pastors learn to answer. Yeah. You look at the programming of our church and it's like, well, where do we where do we do this? Because yeah. people are hungry to learn right. it. And the and the practices I would argue shift from season to season. Hmm. And so in that orientation season, in that first half of the journey, a lot of the practices are what in the tradition is called cataphatic prayer. It's spoken prayer. It's yeah. people learn pr- ways to pray. Um, they learn the Lord's prayer. They, right. uh, but as as we hit seasons of disorientation, our prayers become different. They become prayers of grief and lament and complaint and yeah. um, sometimes imprecatory prayers <laughs> against the people that have hurt us. Right. Right. And um, but I think that. As, as people grow and mature in faith, they, they often find as they get older, and I, and I think this is just a journey of intimacy with God, that words fail them. Yeah. And so we go on what the, the contemplatives call the apophatic journey. Right. And I remember Eugene Peterson was at the seminary a few years ago, and we asked him, we said, Eugene, you're a man of beautiful words. Um, so what does your prayer life look like? Because we can imagine, you know, through your books that it's got to be exquisite. Right. And he said, oh, for me, prayer has become apophatic. Yeah. And in, in this season of life, it's silent, you know. Mm. And and that's that's really, that's why the metaphor of intimacy or, or lovers, you know, Song mm-hmm. of Solomon became such an important book for the mystics because when you're making love, w- words fail you at some point. Yeah. Like you stop talking. Right. I, I assume. I've never experienced. No, uh, but you you simply experience intimacy, right? right? And I think sometimes our words get in the way. So when you ask that question, what does it mean for us to pray as a church? I want to say, what does it mean for you to pray in that first season of your spiritual life? But what's it mean for you to pray during seasons of suffering and pain? Yeah. And how does that evolve and emerge, right? Yeah, so. and, and it's something I think the soul craves, yeah. those, that silence. I mean, the rise of mindfulness meditation, you know, is something yeah. that's huge in our culture yeah. right now. And Contemplative prayer. Yeah, and, it, and it's, you said this earlier, but we, you know, the church would benefit from kind of going back to the future and, and realizing, yeah. hey, we have the resources in our tradition to yeah. equip people for those, yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah, so. that's right. Well, hey, thanks for making time for this. Yeah, thank you. Good to chat. Good to catch up. Now first he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. All right, thanks for listening. Cultivated is a production of Harbor Media and the Narrativo Group. We make podcasts at Narrativo. You can learn more about that at narrativogroup.com. This episode was produced and mixed by me. Our theme song is by Roman Campbell. All right, off to the races. We'll be back in two weeks. See you then. Please uh, take a minute to rate and review this in iTunes if you haven't already. And uh, tell your friends that we're back. See you soon. Hey,